Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Silas House. He is the prize-winning New York Times best-selling author of seven novels, one book of creative nonfiction, and three plays. His new novel is Lark Ascending, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Silas, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to have you here, Silas. And first, before we talk about your book, I want to ask you, how have you been doing these past few years since COVID-19 hit us? Has your life as a writer been any different than it was before? Well, actually, it was the pandemic was a really productive time for me. Um, mm. Usually when I'm feeling troubled, I, I get more productive and I tend to I've always turned to writing to get me through everything. So I went right into action <laughs> during lockdown and um, actually finished two books during the pandemic. So I feel really lucky um, to have had that time of stillness and more you know more time for introspection and observation absolutely um that's fantastic thank you silas i see uh on your book cover that you were going on a book tour and you're stopping in denver you should swing on over to aspen while you're there we're not that far away yeah that would be fantastic we'll we'll, uh, host you anytime well um let's dive into this excellent new novel lark ascending which is sure to be one of the best of the year Silas, this book surprised me from the very start. We open on a boat that is crossing uh, the Atlantic. This put me firmly somewhere in the 1400s to early 1900s in my head as I was starting. And then someone on the boat starts singing with or without you. And I first thought to myself, is this a traditional tune? And I was unaware of that. It was this not written by Bono in the edge, but no Silas, I soon found out we're in the future. Um, as such, can you take a moment please to set this story up for our listeners? Well, I do love that moment where, you know, with or without you is this song from the far past, but um, yeah. So the main character is Lark. He's 20 years old and he is on the run with his family um, there's been a, uh, catastrophe fueled by climate change, and this has sort of enabled this group of insurrectionists to, to finally take over the United States, and, um, it's become a theocracy, and, um, women have been stripped of their rights, uh, minorities, and LGBTQ people, their existence has been outlawed. And so Lark is a young gay man. Um, so his family is, you know, hiding them because of that. But also they're they're trying to get away from these forest fires. And so they just, uh, you know, they're always on the run. And they go from uh, Appalachia to Maine to Nova mm-hmm. Scotia. Finally, they're on a crowded refugee boat headed for Ireland, which is rumored to be the last place uh, receiving refugees. But once they get there, they find out that's not true anymore. And so most of the book is about Lark, who is walking across a sort of deserted Ireland. And along the way, he creates a family for himself in the form of a, an abandoned beagle. 
and a mysterious woman and all three of them are really grief stricken so to me the book is mostly about grief it's about dealing with deep grief and the notion that you know, when you are in deep grief you have two choices you know to either give up or to keep going and so these three survivors just they keep going and they keep trying to find safety and along the way they really create a family for themselves so for me that's what it's about it's about grief and the natural world and created family and the bond between humans and animals and it's a an ode to ireland and um and writing a book that's so rooted in deep grief one thing i really wanted to do was focus a lot on the way that wonder and beauty can carry us through and uh, you know just those little moments like like that 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 gets you through absolutely thank you so much silas and we're going to elaborate on uh, many of those things you just spoke about over the course of this uh episode uh, but first of all i want to ask you did you use any seafaring tales novels journals or otherwise as inspiration for this beginning section of your novel i'm so glad you asked that because not many people have picked up on that so far um, Robert Louis Stevenson's work was really influential to me in writing um, these opening scenes where they are on the ocean, particularly Kidnapped. And to some degree, Larkasinin is a very loose retelling of Kidnapped. Um, you know, Kidnapped is a, a quite political book mm -hmm. in its own way. Um, and the, the lead character also joins forces with this sort of mysterious person. He doesn't know if they're good or bad, you know, so it has a few little odes like that too, uh, a few little nods to Kidnapped. I did that because I really wanted it to have a timeless quality. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, the, the novel Kidnapped still really stands up. It's so readable. Um, thematically, it still really works. And I just don't think we have a lot of adventure stories geared towards adults. And we certainly don't have adventure stories where the main character is a queer character. And so I really wanted this, you know, adventure story to be anchored by this gay man. Um, you know, I, 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 I write the books that I want to read. And that was just something that I was interested in. Um, I wanted a language-driven book that was action-packed. And so I'm really happy with this beginning, you know, which sort of just thrusts you onto this crowded refugee boat and um, that's being rocked by this wild ocean. So I, I, I love that section of the book. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Silas. And I'm happy to hear that you are writing the books you want to read. I bet that makes the process of writing them uh, so much easier and more fun. Um, I want to ask you, Silas, uh, for our listeners, who are the fundies and how did they seize power? Uh, well, <clears throat> I, I started on this book two or three years before January 6th. And by the time I was in revision, I saw the people who were in control of the United States in my novel were the insurrectionists who were invading the Capitol. It was the same. It's that same. It's that scenario 
if those people actually took control and how terrifying I find that to be. <laughs> and um, so to some degree, you know, the book to me is not only about personal grief, Lark has lost everyone he loves, but he's also lost his country. And I think a whole lot of us feel that way to some degree. We feel like we are losing our country and we feel like we're witnessing the demise of democracy. And there's a grief involved in that, you know. And so the fundies are fundamentalists who believe that, you know, everybody should be the way they believe, should go by their rules, and they go by very literal reading of the Bible. And I don't really go a lot into that in the book. You know, it's it's somewhat ambiguous. But in my mind, they were Christian fundamentalists who were, you know, just waiting to take over and take people's rights away and demand that everybody be like them. I, I was raised in a very strict fundamentalist church. And mm -hmm. so I imagined, you know, if the church that I was raised in, if those people came into control, what would they do? I knew that they would strip women of their rights. I knew that they would target people of color, minorities. I knew they would hate immigrants. And I knew that they would uh, strip the rights of LGBTQ people. So I just sort of put that nightmare scenario into action. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Silas. And you mentioned um, the insurrection, uh, the failed insurrection, but how much of the period between, say, 2016 and 2020 did you pull from as inspiration for this novel? Well, I think I was thinking a lot about the way things were going and if they would get worse and how quickly things had gotten really bad. And so if you tack 20 years onto that, how bad would it be? So I'm imagining the book to be about 20 years from now. <clears throat> um, and so, of course, none of that really matters to the reader unless you put a human face on it, you know. And so I had to create characters that readers would really care about who were going through this and suffering through it, you know. So you have a character like Lark who is afraid where he's from. Um, you have a character like Seamus the Beagle in a time when there are hardly any dogs because dogs have not really been outlawed, but they've been gotten rid of because um, they're too hard to take care of in a time of hunger. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have a character like um, Helen, who is a part of the rebellion in Ireland and trying to keep her country together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to talk about this more after the break. But first, listeners, we are going to hear a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Silas House. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. 
Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Silas House, author of Lark Ascending, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Silas, continuing our conversation from before the break, I'm noticing a trend of people who I know suddenly becoming very interested in their ancestry in case they can apply for dual citizenship in some other country. Um, Are people really planning to flee America, Silas? I know they are in your novel, but is this happening as we sit here in late 2022? I think a lot of that depends on the midterm elections and the next presidential race. But I know that, you know, over the last six years, I know a lot of people, friends of mine, who have seriously talked about that. They've seriously considered what am I going to do if the country falls into the hands of these insurrectionists? And, um, you know, for me, that's one reason this book is set in Ireland, because for me, Ireland would be the, the, the place that I would would think of as a safe place for me. It's a place where I have uh, friendships and uh, where I've been a lot and that I, a country I know really well. Um, I mean, it sounds outlandish, I guess, to some degree, you know, to say, oh, well, I'm, I have a backup plan to get out of here. But when you are part of some of the targeted groups, you do have to think that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you see trans people being openly persecuted, um, when you see women being stripped of their autonomy, when you see um, people of color moan down in the streets because of their race, I mean, it's a concerning, troubling time. And so you do have to think about those things. And uh, some people say that's alarmist. I tend to think the people who find that alarmist are people who are much more comfortable than the people who are more concerned about it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before I took this job in Aspen, I almost took a job uh, in Vermont specifically because I knew I could just run right over the border uh, (laughs) if I needed to. And it's crazy to be thinking that way, but here we are. Um, Well, um, I also love Ireland. I spent some time there around the uh, centennial Bloomsday celebration as I'm a James Joyce nerd. Um, But Ireland, Silas, is where our protagonist Lark um, and his family are fleeing to at the beginning of this novel. It is one of two countries accepting refugees from America, I think, along with Iceland at the time. Um, As our protagonist is sailing for Ireland, Ireland stops accepting refugees. Uh, Why is this message not delivered to their boat? What has happened to communications, cellular and otherwise? Well, you know, I just think there's a total breakdown of communications, and that's just part of the world building. It's just um, everything has sort of been thrust back into, you know, pre-electricity, basically, and a lot of the technology's just been destroyed. And Mm -hmm. so by the time, you know, and they're also on a a boat that's ill-equipped for, it's not made for a transatlantic crossing. It's made for coastal waters, you know, and I just, 
one really interesting thing about writing a novel is you try to put your characters in as much trouble as possible because if you do that it's going to make it more interesting you're going to have more conflict um, and so you know historically Ireland has uh, over and over again um, fallen under the control of, of England and so England has fallen under control of its own sort of fundamentalism and, and they've taken over Ireland by the time they get there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the thing, you know, I spent so much of my time off screen of the book building these world scenarios. But once you're in the book, you don't, you don't want to put too much of that in there. You want to leave some room for the reader to just sort of have some ambiguity about it and to, imagine their own scenarios, but also not be confused. So that's the real balancing act of writing a book like this, is figuring some of that stuff out. And that's why it was so new and such a challenge for me, because I've always only written books set in reality over the you know last 100 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I never thought I would write a book that could be classified as science fiction or climate fiction or however you know it gets categorized. To my mind, it's a literary novel that happens to be set against, you know, the near future. Mm -hmm. um, but my main concern was the language, the characters, the sense of place, you know, those sorts of things. And I just, I had to do the world building and I found that to be really interesting. I love doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing about uh, climate fiction, Silas, is that it's not so fictional anymore. Yeah, we're really needing to focus on this stuff. Well, um, thank you, Silas. Uh, moving on, a long time ago in one of my many former lives as a bookseller when I was managing a, a bookstore in San Francisco, I read a book called The Thin Place by Katherine Davis, um, an excellent novel. I believe it was shortlisted for a booker when it came out 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but Silas, what is a thin place and what place does a thin place play in this novel, Lark Ascending? As I understand it, a thin place is where the veil is thin, thinner between the natural world and the supernatural world. Mm -hmm. um, there are places where people feel a particular power that they can't really explain. You know, some people say this is because of magnetic forces underneath the ground, or maybe it's about mineral deposits, or maybe it's something more supernatural. It's not explainable, but most of us have felt that in some place. And one place that a lot of people say that they do have that sense is a place called Glendalock. It's in Ireland, and it's just known as a powerful place. It's been a, it was a monastic settlement from the, about the 6th century. And so the question is, were these monks drawn to it because it was a thin place? Or did it become sort of known as a thin place because people have been gathering there and praying there for all these centuries, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg sort of thing. I think a big part of it is just what an incredibly beautiful place it is, what a peaceful place it is, et cetera. Uh, the topography, you know, just things like that all come into play. In this book, people are they don't have that many options left. And so they've sort of latched on to let's go 
let's head for this place that's known to be a power place or a safe place. Um, and that's what the, the family in this book are, are aiming for. They're trying to get to Glendalough because they've been told that it is a safe place, a powerful place. Yeah, and do you, Silas, do you believe in these uh, thin places, vortexes, vortices, however you pluralize vortex, do you believe in them? That's that's interesting. I mean, I don't know if I would use the phrase, I believe in them, but I have certainly felt that. Uh -huh. I've been certain places where I have felt some kind of unexplainable calm or peace or... You know, I kind of love being a person who believes in science and mystery. I don't think that one has to be exclusive from the other. And so I've always been open to thinking about those things and not being, I kind of like not being quite sure either way and not having a scientific explanation or a supernatural explanation. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of the time, a lot of the time, these places... Are, are that way because of the people that you're with and the people that are attracted to that. And I think that's part of what happens in Lark Ascending. Um, but Glendalough is, you know, it's a place that I tell everyone that's going to Ireland, I tell them to go. It's just such an amazingly beautiful and powerful and historic place. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we'll come back to the question of belief in a moment. But yeah, these places, I've always found myself living near them, you know, San Francisco, um, Aspen, uh, Sedona, Arizona, uh, etc. So I, I find that idea to be very interesting. Um, well, Silas, I always worry when I see a dog in a novel. Um, and I've now read a string of novels with dogs in them. Um, consecutively, including the excellent new novel, Sleepwalk by Dan Sean. Uh, but Silas, I want to talk about the dog in this novel, Seamus, and I want to talk about Helen, uh, who we meet a little over halfway through the novel. Uh, my questions are, does a dog need a person, and does a child need a parent figure, specifically uh, using end times scenarios for context, such as what we are seeing in your novel, Lark Ascending? I think that I think you need that in a novel, you mm -hmm. know, because you need that. Well, one thing is this could be a very dark novel. And so one thing that saves it from being too dark is the presence of the dog, you know, because for one thing, Lark loves the dog and he feels a deep connection to the dog. But also some of the chapters are told from the dog's point of view. And this allows us a sense of wonder to remain that Lark, you know, has had taken from him because of the hardship he's been through. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, dogs are not aware of their mortality. And so that's helpful in a really dark novel like this to have such a hopeful, joyful creature, you know. I think when I'm in the presence of a dog, I always feel like I'm in the presence of pure goodness. And that the only bad dog is one that has had that goodness forced from it, mm -hmm. trained out of it. I think they're innately good creatures. To me, they always represent, you know, my idea of the divine, which is pure goodness. And so 
the dog is so important in, in this book and they definitely need each other I think they you know they're family and I, I know a lot of people who will say you know my animal is part of my family whether it be my cat or my dog or my horse or whatever it is and so I think a lot of us can relate to that yeah absolutely um Silasin, you've got two dog people on the line here with me and uh, Rebecca in the background here. So you just won a lot of points with us. Um, <laughs> but finally, Silas, I told you I wanted to come back to the concept of belief. Uh, I want to ask you to talk about a quote from your novel. And that quote is, to be too certain about belief is a dangerous thing, end quote. Uh, what does this line mean to you, Silas? And what does it mean to your novel? Well, I think it's a really important line in the book, and it sort of is at the foundations of that fundamentalism. I don't think there's, there are a few things more dangerous than somebody who believes God is speaking directly to them, or that they are the ones who, the only ones who have figured out how to be, you know, the, the right, the right way that's so dangerous. And it goes back to what I was saying to some degree about to retain a sense of mystery is really important to be too certain. But especially when you're talking about religious issues, it always scares me to death when I hear somebody say, well, God told me to do this, or I'm doing this because I've been led by my religion and I know it's the right thing and et cetera. I am a person of faith. That's a real complicated faith, but a, the best part of my faith process has been the mystery. And I really am um, on board with the idea of letting the mystery be and people who are too sure of things really frighten me. Um, to go back to the insurrectionists, you know, I think if you watch that video of those insurrectionists, when they get in the Senate chambers and they're saying that really passionate prayer, it is terrifying to witness because they really think they are doing the right thing. And they're clearly, you know, to most, <laughs> most people are, are not. And so it's frightening. How do you, how do you have a logical conversation with somebody like that? You know, so it's a, it's a hard thing to deal with. Um, I think a lot of us have dealt with that over the last few years, people that we love, having conversations with them where you can't really go anywhere because they have a lack of logic in the way they're thinking about uh, the political situation or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I just think that's something that from a very young age, as somebody who was raised in a fundamentalist church, I began to realize that I thought I have to get out of this because the people around me are far too certain and I can see the damage they're doing with that certainty. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is alarming um, to agree with you, Silas, how much logic has flown out the window um, in this present moment of history. But hopefully there will be some course correction in our future. Um, well, yeah, thank you, Silas. And thank you for writing this wonderful book, which is sure to be one of the best of the year. Uh, it is going to hit us at the end of September, and I cannot wait for you listeners to read it. 
I have been speaking with Silas House, author of Lark Ascending, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Silas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jason. I sure appreciate you reading the book so closely. Once again, I would like to thank Silas House for joining me. Copies of Lark Ascending can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quail Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Booking.